I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. Today, we cover a fair bit of news in the opening, but we focus primarily on the race for the Speaker of the House. As I semi-predicted yesterday, Kevin McCarthy did not get the votes necessary to win the Speakership. Of course, he was the front-runner to get the most votes, but... Uh, I didn't think he actually had the math to get to the 218 necessary to get across the finish line. That turned out to be true, at least for day one. And I break down how and why. And while I don't have a dog in this fight, uh, other names that have been floated for the speakership as alternatives actually sound equal or even a bit better to me. Uh, I continue to be pessimistic that whatever speaker emerges from this mess will be better than McCarthy. And I kind of share some of my thoughts on that and some of the mechanics of it all, which is important in uh, this uh, very odd moment that we haven't seen in at least 100 years in this country that we are without a speaker and technically without a Congress. I think if you want to be really uh, uh, precise about it, which is interesting. So we'll see how this all plays out, but it might not be anytime soon. It could be resolved today. It could be resolved months from now. But in the meantime, there will be no investigations, which is bad, but also no prop crappy bills that waste a bunch of your money, which I guess is good. So it's all very sloppy and we'll go from here. Of course, we touch on a few more essential news items in the opening of the show from the pages of Breitbart.com as well. Uh, I will say that uh, we got a new guest today, which is exciting to talk to Darren Beatty. He's a very popular journalist. He has a website called Revolver News. And he's done some really heavy lifting covering the deep state in January the 6th lies. And he's got some really compelling information, but maybe even more interesting. He's got some potential solutions he offers to some of the deepest problems facing the country. It's a real treat to talk to him because he's a super intelligent guy, uh, which I always enjoy. And I know you will as well. Uh, I will tell you, we're probably going to do a little different, uh, I would say, uh, cadence of when we release these podcasts coming up for the next couple months as I wrap up a few major uh, uh, projects that I'm working on that conflict a little bit with my rigorous broadcasting schedule. So if you ever feel like you want to give feedback to the show, things you like, things you don't like, uh, we're all ears here. You can send me an email, alexabreitbart.com, and um, I read just about everything. I don't reply to much, but I do read pretty much everything you send me and any feedback, positive or negative, uh, things you would like to see me try, maybe different formats you would like, things you like about the current format. Uh, I'm all ears. Send me an email and uh, I will read it and it'll be, I'll have plenty of time to think about it while I'm wrapping up some of these other items. So if you don't see a podcast post five, six days a week, uh, then that's fine. Uh, but uh, by all means, tune in to the SiriusXM app. And you can hear some of our variety of hosts who we're going to be having uh, fill in for me. And they're all really terrific pro broadcasters uh, on the SXM app or on 6 a.m. Eastern time every day on SiriusXM Patriot 125. All right, let's get into the monologue. Let me begin by noting the biggest story in the world uh, at this time is certainly what's going on in the House of Representatives. It is truly unprecedented stuff. And we say this all the time that something is unprecedented, but uh, we've got a uh, extra ballots on the speakership race, the, who is the Speaker of the House for the first time in 100 years, uh, which means that, you know, we went to bed without a Speaker of the House last night for the first time, I guess, in 100 years is the implication. And if there's some sort of technicality to prove that's not true, uh, by all means, call in, share it with me, educate us, enlighten us on the history. Uh, but that does seem like that's the case. So Kevin McCarthy needed 218 total votes out of the 222, 223, whatever is the final tally of Republicans, and uh, he did not get them. And there were a number of Republican uh, defectors who did not support him. And I got the impression as the day went on that the reason why was largely personal stuff. Like they just don't like him personally because as I've been noting on the show, um, uh, a few key factoids. First of all, of the, of course, McCarthy is part of the establishment, so to speak, but he's really spent the last few years trying his best, I believe, to court the anti-establishment, the America First side of the party. And I don't really know what else he was supposed to do during that time. 
uh, on a personal level to try to get back in the good graces of the anti-establishment crowd that buoyed Trump to victory, etc. Uh, he does seem to have done a pretty earnest job of doing that, um, yet not satisfactory for everyone, particularly some of those in the Freedom Caucus. Um, so who would be the replacement speaker? There's no one even in the, in the vicinity of getting enough votes at this point. And a lot of people feel as though those who are objecting to McCarthy uh, getting the votes, even though he's got well over 200, are uh, just trying to be disruptors. They're not trying to govern. They're trying to preen. They're trying to virtue signal. They're trying to grandstand. And so a lot of people who are in the pro-McCarthy side are only McCarthy at this point. So they are not going to vote for anyone else who's Republican. And that's led to a deadlock, which is semi-embarrassing. And it's what we've been witnessing. Um, and we've got a list. I'm not going to do the thing where I read all the lists of everyone uh, who is the key players. We've got them all for you, Breitbart.com. We've got a live blog going that Matt Boyle's been working around the clock, uh, writing all the details out for you. And we're trying to break out all the individual highlights and uh, many, many, if not all of the top things will come up, I think, during the course of the broadcast today. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that there is uh, the the Republicans do not have a Speaker of the House who is a consensus pick. So there were, I think, um, 20 Republicans who at some point voted against McCarthy. I think that, that number is a little bit smaller in reality who wouldn't vote for him under certain conditions. And some of the conditions can be met, some cannot be met, which leads me to my virtue signaling um, uh, point that some of them, I think, are just about making statements. Like at one point, um, uh, Byron Donald, for example, I think on the third ballot, did not vote for McCarthy. But I think he didn't vote for him in the sense that he'd kind of thrown in the towel that McCarthy's not going to get there and it is time to, you know, take a break, to adjourn, and then go negotiate amongst the caucus and then come back. Uh, which is what happened after three straight ballots. So as we discussed quite a bit on yesterday's show, and this aged very well, it aged like a fine wine that happens to age very rapidly, which is not how wine ages. What's something that ages well quickly? So we know things like cheese ages pretty well for the most part, aside from American cheese. Which, why did we name the worst cheese not even cheese after ourselves? Uh, we're the great and powerful American Republic. Why would we call the worst processed nasty cheese that's almost never good? Let's be honest. I'm not saying never. I'm not one of those people who will never eat a slice of American cheese, but it's rarely the correct cheese for the situation. And we picked that one. Odd. Um, anyway, the, um, the, I, I like to use age like a banana for something that ages badly. Age is like wine. But what about something that you said yesterday that sounds pretty smart 24 hours later? Anyway, I'm not going to spend that much time on that. Okay, we'll do the next 45 minutes on that point, and then we'll move on. Um, no, in, all, in, all, in all honesty, I said yesterday, we were trying to find the path. What happens next? What happens next once you reject McCarthy? The only thing that was really on the table was Steve Scalise, which works out fine for me and for this show. Scalise comes on the show, and I, I think he's a good man. Um, but I don't see how he's more anti-establishment than McCarthy. I, they feel pretty similarly uh, anti-establishment. Both guys who are of the establishment who have done, I think, a good job of trying to reach out and bridge that divide and prove they want to govern, not just virtue signaling grandstand, from a perspective that represents both elements of the party. There's really kind of more granularity than that, but at least kind of both major wings of the party, the crowd that is anti-establishment and the crowd that's the establishment. So, but that said, I do think McCarthy probably has some personal baggage I don't get. Scalise might have less. Uh, Scalise seems like just genuinely a good guy. I don't know Kevin McCarthy at all. And I'm, I'm getting the impression that some people just don't like him as a guy. Um, but, you know, the top names that have been out there are Paul Gosar, Matt Gates, Bob Good, Scott Perry, um, and uh, Lauren Boebert, I think, are sort of the leaders of it. Uh, there's uh, others in the group um, that are, uh, you know, uh, uh, the uh, Andy Biggs is out there. That's kind of the, the main group. There's others who consistently voted against McCarthy. Um, Dan Bishop, Eli Crane, um, Ralph Norman, Matt Rosendale, and a, a couple others were kind of, uh, Anna Paulina Luna, a few others were in there. But some of them, I don't know how committed they are to this posture, if this goes on forever. And it can't really go on forever, ultimately, because, again, the name of the game 
is not sending a signal to the public where you stand. The name of the game is ultimately governing. And this is tricky because the, as again, as noted on yesterday's broadcast, but worth, worth stating again, uh, traditionally speaking, being a good legislator is about being uh, able to cut good deals, to negotiate, to compromise. Now, that didn't feel very good when that, um, that over time turned into selling out to, de- to Democrats, which is what the Republican establishment has been known for. It's what Mitch McConnell's known for, it's what Paul Ryan's known for, it's what John Boehner's known for. It's what really almost all the Republican establishment has been known for. So uh, how do you reject that notion to make sure that you're negotiating more with the conservative wing of the Republican Party and less with just Democrats in general? It's very hard to reassure everyone in the Republican Party that whichever character who's put out there from the establishment fits that mold. Um, And, you know, you would like to think that people in my position, for example, can do a pretty good job of assessing who those people are. I think they've got two of them. I think McCarthy and Scalise are the two top names on my list who are people who could probably bridge that divide. Um, Yet there's enough people in the base, and I'm not even saying that I know that they're wrong. There's enough people in the base who are not convinced and smart people and good people. So, but these are people who are playing with a lot of fire here because now that we've had McCarthy rejected, they did three ballots, didn't win on any of them. Now, where do they go? And they could go a number of places. There's a chance because of the uh, perceived personal issues with McCarthy, Scalise could get through, though I think that doesn't sound super likely. So then what? Who do they put out there? Um, I was running by Matt Boyle. Could it be someone who's not even in the Congress? Could it be a Newt Gingrich? Could it be someone who's uh, everyone likes who's literally not a congressman, which is possible. You're allowed to do that. It's discussed all the time and never done, but it's possible. And Boyle just said, no, I I didn't get his full rationale. I'll get it later in the broadcast when he gets here. He doesn't think it's going to happen. So then do you think there's a possibility the Democrats are able to... uh, pull off some establishment Republicans, maybe some who are embarrassed by what happened yesterday, and they're able to uh, field a candidate and make a moderate Democrat the speaker. That is entirely possible at this point. Um, Hakeem Jeffries, election denier, who got the most votes for the Democrat side, actually got the most votes overall. They got the mo- Hakeem Jeffries got more votes than Kevin McCarthy on the first ballot, if not two ballots, if not three ballots. Um, I don't know the exact total for all of them right in front of me at this time. But he actually got more votes. Because I think when it became clear that that the five or so individuals, uh, maybe it's even as high as 10, uh, were not going to vote for McCarthy under any circumstances, it came clear, I think that McCarthy lost a handful of other votes, maybe nine or 10 more votes from that. So once that happened, it actually was um, the Democrats who were able to uh, take advantage and get more voters. But again, not a majority. So a lot of frustration and a lot of confusion. And I will try to get to the phones a little quicker in this regard, 866-95-PATRIOT, because I want your take. I want your take on what you're seeing here. Um, do you trust that what Matt Gates is doing, for example, and generally speaking, I'm on the pro-Matt Gates side of things. I just think what Matt Gates is getting out of life like, is he wants to be uh, a, a, a front person. He wants to be on TV. He wants people to adore him in media. I think in general, his principles are solid, imperfect. I think he's done some stuff I really uh, disagree with over time. But I think that his motivations are not to uh, try to govern. I think his motivations are try to get on TV and get ideas out there and to get media attention. Think that is uh, um, that's how I feel about him. I think folks like Lauren Boebert are, try to be ideologically pure, and I think she sees ideological purity as a which I regard as you know a noble cause. Uh, I think she regards that in this case she could not look herself in the mirror if she votes for Kevin McCarthy. I understand that, but I would like to see what the alternatives would be, and if there's one that actually could get through, that is better. And if there's not, then what's the plan here? Is it to wait to enough until uh, enough moderate Republicans uh, get fed up enough that they end up voting with some Democrat, and we literally hand the speaker's gavel over to the Democrat? Uh, we can't start any investigations. We can't really start any legislation. We can't start any business. Period, until we get this thing resolved. 
So, uh, needless to say, there was a lot of high-fiving going on on the left. Democrats gloating, White House gloating. Everyone's very happy to watch this go on. So, first time in 100 years, speakers failed to get elected. And again, if it, gets, if it happens today, if people sort it out, then, you know, it, this will be a quick moment in history that we all move past. But, but where do we go from here? I don't understand it. Republicans take power, and the first day, what do we do? We just uh, declare some sort of a, a, a dumpster fire and bring everyone down. We all watch the dumpster fire burn. Terrific. I, I'm not going as far as say this is the end of the world, but it was not a great display yesterday. And I'm very curious what everyone's take is, particularly those of you who just think that, you know, McCarthy can't be trusted and it seems like a bad guy and you don't want to support him. Fine. Got it. Understood. So where do we go? This is what I've been asking for weeks and I've not gotten a good answer. And I've asked it directly to some of these people's. I don't think I've spoken to any of those congressmen directly about it, but I've spoken to um, people affiliated with them. That's for sure. And I've never gotten a good answer. So they don't have one. There's no good answer. They're standing on principle, and whatever principle that is, whether it's get attention or whether it's just prove that they are, you know, ideologically the most pure of them all. Who is the purest of them all? Mirror, mirror on the wall. I mean, that's kind of where we're at, and I would like to see what, prove to me that's not where we are. Matt Gates, for example, supported Paul Ryan for Speaker of the House, as Marjorie Taylor Greene's been pointing out, been pointing out. I'm not even trying to pick on him exactly. I just know that he's very committed to not supporting McCarthy no matter what. And I really don't think he cares if someone worse gets the job. I just don't think he cares. I don't think that's what gets Matt Gates out of bed. I think what gets Matt Gates out of bed is people listening to his ideas and looking at him on television. So as it happens, a lot of his ideas are good. And he's not bad on television. But I just don't think that that ultimately is what's going to be best for the country, unless you can prove me wrong. And maybe you can. All right, so um, that's kind of the biggest thing, and that was, needless to say, preoccupying uh, a lot of our time at uh, Breitbart News, and it's just been a pleasure for the Democrats to witness all of it. And I'm going to bring you guys in. Um, Swamp King Mitch McConnell has, uh, again, been pushed ahead in the Senate. Uh, A disgraceful display by Republicans in the Senate. What can I say? Uh, Just embarrassing. Um, 79% of Americans predict that 2023 will deliver economic difficulty. Are you in that group? It is very noteworthy how there were not many people in my social media feed or my personal life who have been telling me that they believe that 2023 is going to be their year. Does anyone in your life say that? This is another one where you feel free to call me and chime in on this. Uh, do, were people in your life this year saying how jacked up they were for 2023? Almost no one is at least in my life. No one thinks 2023 is going to be the year they're going to dominate. Everyone hopes 2023 is a the year they're going to survive. So, um, it is a, I think it's quite, quite noteworthy that this is the moment we're in as a society where we're getting so pessimistic, which is dark. And I, I that makes me sad because I want people to be excited and thriving. And, you know, I, I manage a lot of people as editor-in-chief of Breitbart and, you know, I've got my um, small little research team I do some stuff with and it is, I want them motivated. I want them happy. I want them excited about life. And it's very hard to do that in this current climate. Uh, And I'm sure you're experiencing that in your life. There's a lot of people who are doing fine. You know, this is America. Things are fine. But it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of evidence things are improving at at a market rate. And that makes me sad because I would like for our country to continue to be exceptional, which I've always believed in. It's always been a big driver for me. Um, yet it is not right this time, at this moment. At this moment, it does feel as though um, the, feel as, as though people are just trying to survive. And I just don't think that's a great, that's great for our culture. Because we've been grinded down. We've been so divided for so long. We've really been divided since the Obama years. A couple years in Obama's administration, you know, 2009, 2010. I, I don't know if we ever got over kind of 2009, the combination of Obama not being the unifier and then the financial crisis. It just feels like we've just been kind of deeply divided since then. And it just gets worse. 
Okay, one of you just sent me, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, and uh, Scott Perry said that they don't mind if a Democrat wins the speakership. Okay, so I don't know if that's true. It's just a report, but just a something to throw out there. All right, on the flip side, you take out Florida, great scenes over there. Uh, Ron DeSantis kicked off his new administration, 20% victory, by the way. And um, he's quoting Psalms, saying this is where wokeness goes to die. Um, just really terrific stuff. I've got some audio. Let's play some of this. Cut 10, please, uh, Mr. Zach. Well, these last few years have witnessed a great test of governing philosophies, as many jurisdictions pursued a much different path than we have pursued here in the state of Florida. The policies pursued by these states have sparked a mass exodus of productive Americans from these jurisdictions, with Florida serving as the most desired destination a promised land of sanity. Many of these cities and states have embraced faddish ideology at the expense of enduring principles. They've harmed public safety by coddling criminals and attacking law enforcement. They've imposed unreasonable burdens on taxpayers to finance unfathomable levels of public spending. They have harmed education by subordinating the interests of students and parents to partisan interest groups. They have imposed medical authoritarianism in the guise of pandemic mandates and restrictions that lack a scientific basis. This bizarre but prevalent ideology that permeates these policy measures purports to act in the name of justice for the marginalized but it frowns upon American institutions. It rejects merit and achievement, and it advocates identity essentialism. We reject this woke ideology. We seek normalcy, not philosophical lunacy. We will not allow reality, facts, and truth to become optional. We will never surrender to the woke mob Florida is where woke goes to die. Yeah, pretty good. I mean, delivery's a little dry, I would say, but the content is A+. And that's kind of been how he's been so effective. It's the, just the flash is all in the actions and not in uh, the rhetoric. Rhetoric's pretty good, pretty good. I don't disagree with any of that. Uh, and I think that he sees very clearly what, what are the problems um, facing our society right now. And a lot of it stems from this word wokeness. That's it. So good stuff. Uh, congrats to him and the family look good. And that's just a, a good example down there in Florida, especially when you contrast it with whatever is go, whatever the heck is going on in Washington. Um, okay. A couple other items that I care to bring up before I flip it over to the phones. Um, the uh, Sam Bankman fried of FTX, who is, uh, about to start his trial. Judge has, uh, the, he's asked the judge to keep the people who paid his $250 million bail a secret. So, uh, I, of course, he wants it to be a secret because he's a Democrat donor. And uh, you can bet that there's a lot of vested interests who would like to see him uh, somehow win his trial, get back on his feet. Probably a lot of people own favors. So, it is just a, a amazing how in our society, how if you're a petty criminal or if you don't declare something you spent $6, $600 on, uh, on your taxes, then government's all over you. But if you steal billions, you can ask for special treatment and he might get it. Let's see if he gets it. All right, more Twitter files got get released um, yesterday. I'm kind of burning out on the Twitter files. So if any of you guys spot something really great and you think I missed it, or I'm sure we don't miss it, all of us at Breitbart, but feel free to call me and tell me if you want to bring it up. Uh, I make this because I'm just burning out on it. They just seem, you know, kind of proving obvious things we've all known, which is nice. I just don't feel like bringing them to your attention because I probably brought them to your attention two years ago. Just I didn't have the receipts, I guess. But um, the the company Twitter exaggerated Russian influence to uh, in the uh, on Donald Trump and the 2016 election to appease the media and Democrats. It's great. Yes, obviously. Um, good to know, but we get it. Um, some data we, we reported on a Breitbart News that uh, I'll probably bring up later in the broadcast. But uh, with uh, in fiscal year 2022, there's now uh, at the end of fiscal year 2022, there's 1.2 million fugitive illegal aliens remaining in the country. 
So even though they've got final deportation orders, so they've gone through the entirety of the process, there is nothing left to do. There is no way to delay it. There is no way to fight back at all. There is no appeal left. 1.2 million fugitives. And they're here. So Joe Biden uh, deported the least level of criminal legal aliens in a very long time. Uh, and that number is, yeah, fewest gang members, I'm sorry, fewest gang members since Obama. So for 2022 is our lowest years. And that shouldn't shock anyone. Obviously, the deportations are going to go down relative to Trump. Even though Trump's border agenda turned out to be imperfect, it was still, you know, miles better than, than Biden's. And the DHS has said that there's no record on over 350,000 border crossers released in the U.S. So they've acknowledged there's 350,000 that they have literally no idea who they are. They don't have one piece of paper on them. And so how much bigger is that number than what they're telling us? So no records of hundreds of thousands of border crossers released in the U.S. Um, that they're supposed to be monitoring through its Alternatives to Detention program that they established. So this is from a Freedom of Information Act request that uh, for whatever reason, a something called the Transactional Research Access Clearinghouse at Syracuse University filed. And uh, we learned that um, despite some, I think, heavy delays here, but it's really ICE data mismanagement is what this is being blamed on. Um, anyway, fascinating. There's just so many people in our country and it's such an embarrassment. No other country is this bad in this regard. We have the worst legal immigration issue in the world and we seem to be perfectly comfortable with that. Why are we so comfortable with it? Well, undocumented Democrats drives down wages of Americans so that the business elite can continue to make lots and lots of profit. I don't know how it's sustainable that most of the country lives paycheck to paycheck and cannot cover emergency expenses. Uh, they, they don't have any savings whatsoever. Crippling credit card debt, crippling student loan debt, rising rent, rising real estate. And yet we have part of the world that makes so much money, it is beyond belief. Any of you who follow any luxury real estate, any of you who have ever been to a website where you see what people are buying in terms of yachts these days, private planes, it's just the gap between the haves and the have-nots is just so crazy. And Americans are just simply not prepared. We have almost no emergency funds for the vast majority of the country. How long is this going to go on? I don't know. Again, all this erodes the concept that we're an exceptional place. Um, okay, a couple other culturey things I'll throw out there before we get to the phones. Hollywood's upset that the directors of the top grossing films, again, were all white males. And this happens all the time. Um, the Top Gun Maverick, Avatar, so many others that uh, the um, uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, um, Jurassic World, Dominion, those are the biggest movies of the year. Some others. Uh, this has been the story of uh, movies, which is part of the reason why I think that the woke left is happy to see the movies uh, die as a art form, which they are dying, at least in terms of the theatrical experience, is that they're sort of the anti-woke over the years. Uh, traditionally speaking, even though there's been a lot of sucker punches politically in movies over the last 20 years, which we've documented better than anyone at Breitbart in terms of politics, um, traditionally, it's been an industry dominated by cis-hetero white males. If you don't know all that expression, you'll have to look it up. I won't explain fully. But that's, it's really been a cis-hetero, white male-dominated world. Now, there's many amazing women directors. Obviously, at least half of major movie stars are women. So I'm not saying that there's no women that are part of it. Uh, I'm certainly not saying there aren't a lot of gay people who are part of it or a lot of people of color who are part of it, a lot of great directors of color. So my point is, though, overall, if you look at it, it is a industry, especially on the business side, but also largely on the creative side, which has been dominated by this group of people that's really out of style right now. Um, but it doesn't mean being out of style means that they don't uh, have a good formula of getting people's butts in the seats. 
So I do think that this does not, even though um, it's interesting because in a way it's a minor rejection of wokeness, it just reminds you of yet another reason why I think this art form, the quintessential American art form, is kind of dying and is um, going to continue that way, I think, for a while longer. Um, okay, uh, Elon Musk has gone red, was our expression of Breitbart News. Tesla is promoting... Uh, it's a a boss to head the U.S. plants and sales that was their chief of operations in China. So their top guy in China is now going to be in charge of U.S. plants and sales. So just a reminder that a lot of the stuff Musk is doing to try to make you feel good about Twitter is because he needs to rely on U.S. government money and Chinese government money to run his bigger company, which is Tesla. So he needs to be in the good graces of the Chinese Communist Party in order to sell the amount of cars he wants to sell. And a lot of people in conservative media are going to be not as hard on him because uh, a lot of conservative media loves what he's doing with Twitter. So there is a very clever head fake that's going on that he's up to and it's important to keep an eye on it. Uh, And it's quite clever because even as I say this right now, I really appreciate what he's doing with Twitter. And I don't want him to stop doing what he's doing with Twitter. He's opening up Twitter to some degree. Um, I like the Twitter files, even though they're kind of a little boring for me. But the I, they're definitely better that they're out there than not out there. Um, but just note that he is uh, dependent on China in so many ways and dependent on the U.S. government for everything else. Um, a lot of storms still going on. There's a lot of rain out on the west coast of the country. And we are seeing something huge, a huge catastrophic storm heading for the Bay Area of California. Uh, surreal footages of, um, you know, a storm front coming in. Something called an atmospheric river, which is a high altitude current of dense moisture. It's going to drench that part of the world. So uh, keep an eye on that. But it's been a very rainy and cold winter thus far. And it is not slowing up, it appears. So stay safe out there, as the expression goes. And we'll give you updates at Breitbart.com. Okay, our guest today, again, Darren Beatty from Evolver News. You probably recognize him from popping up on Tucker's show. He has a big online following, and for good reason. He's a good reporter and a smart guy. Let's hear from him. Alex Marlowe here, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, here with Revolver News is Darren Beatty. Darren, it's great to finally get to talk to you in person. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. So we're at Turning Point USA America Fest in Arizona. I, you're someone who's built a really strong grassroots following over the last few years in media. What do you think are the issues that are resonating with grassroots conservatives that maybe people are missing? Well, you know, one thing more than anything else, if there's a broad theme running through our Um, investigative reporting, it's this, that the national security state has been reconfigured and weaponized politically in order to silence and suppress the energies associated with Donald Trump's victory in 2016. That's the broad thematic. It encompasses the issue of tech censorship, which as we're learning, it's not simply an issue of woke private companies acting in their own sort of narrow capacity to censor people. Yes, there are woke employees throughout, you know, these companies, but ultimately it's coming from the government. It's coming from the national security state. And we've reported on this extensively. And now you see in the Twitter files this being substantiated in a way that nobody can deny. So national security state is the bottleneck, the censorship issue. We see the national security state's role in, for instance, Russiagate from very early on trying to basically circumvent, subvert the presidency of Trump. And then a third dimension, which is probably what we're most known for in terms of our investigative reporting, is January 6th. And we've shown, I think, quite powerfully that there's a strong case to be made that the federal government itself was involved in certain key elements of January 6th to the point that we've coined this term Fedsurrection that has taken on. And so again, there's a theme running through the whole thing, which is that the national security state is really the chief bottleneck to political progress. And unless and until we 
put the national security state in its place until we bring them to heel, unfortunately, most of our politics will remain fake and performative. It's really evident just about everywhere within the deep state that this is happening. Because right. if you think about where the DOJ's priorities have been, it's you know moms who don't like trans kids, you know, harassing their children at school, and uh, people think our education system and the lockdowns were too woke and too aggressive, and that's the problem for our DOJ. So if if that's the perspective of that part of the government, and another part of the government, the FBI, is colluding with Twitter to censor certain speech, and it goes deeper than that. The, it feels like we're really just scratching the surface, but the trick is how do we go, go deeper as journalists, as conservatives, con conservative citizens? How do we go deeper to figure out what's going on and eventually unwind it? Well, look, it, you know, we just need to investigate and you need to operate with the appropriate heuristics. And again, what I think Revolver has been so good at, part of the reason that we're so effective is that we go beyond sort of the typical, oh, the left-right thing or, oh, look at the latest outrage that AOC did and you know that kind of thing like there's there's a place for that but ultimately you want to look at why haven't we been effective why haven't we been effective even when we win elections why is it that despite all of the great things Trump did in so many ways he wasn't able to do what he wanted to do because of the impediments that existed within the bureaucracy that he nominally controlled. Why is that the case? And to again, to explain that, you really need to look at what the national security state's role in politics is. And there's a long history of this. And in fact, in some ways, the left is more attuned to this because in a previous era of American politics, the national security state was somewhat weaponized against the left in many ways. And so, you know, the regime doesn't like to reinvent their own playbook. If there's an antecedent for something, chances are this exists today in some modified fashion. There was, you know, Project Mockingbird in which the, you know, federal government, the intelligence agencies infiltrated the media and now we have its modern day digital equivalents that we're seeing in terms of this whole economy of quote unquote disinformation experts who are basically censoring domestic political speech under the pretext of this term disinformation which is a national security term which basically means not only are these people bad people but they're national security threats for disagreeing with us and therefore we need to invoke the full weight and force of the American national security state to destroy our political enemies. And that's really where we are as a country at this point. And the clearest evidence has been the Twitter files to date in terms of just clearness of it. But of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Do we have any hope that we might learn the truth about what Google is doing, perhaps, which I think is much more nefarious than Twitter? Uh, and I'm sure Meta is just as bad. It's, right. it's the But it, it, luckily, we have this rogue, Elon Musk, who I'm critical of in some ways, but it's doing something very positive with these Twitter files. Uh, but we kind of got lucky that that happened. And if we don't get lucky again, how are we going to figure out the truth about what's going on between the feds and Google? Right. No, I mean, it's a great point. And again, we did get lucky. And it's one of these things. It's like, you know, if you really think about it, it's kind of unfortunate and even a little bit pathetic that Elon Musk has done more for free speech on the internet than any elected Republican Such official. And the thing is, is again, it's like this comes from the private sector. I almost joke that instead of going through the process of another election cycle, wasting millions and millions and sometimes billions cumulatively on you know more elections that don't deliver anything, we should set up like a SPAC fund put that money in the SPAC fund and then figure out which tech company we should engage in a hostile takeover of wow. and establish free speech there because that seems to have been the proven model with Elon Musk. So maybe we need to get a little bit more creative about how we you know, harness and channel our resources and power. But ultimately, you're right. Google is a huge animal unto itself. There's something called Project Jigsaw. If you're listening to this, look it up. There's an individual called Jared Cohen, who is literally like the pioneer in many ways of the whole reappropriating national security strat social media strategies that are originally designed to combat ISIS and you know and nefarious actors in the Middle East and such to 
direct against political speech that the regime doesn't like domestically. And so there's a whole rabbit hole unto itself when you look at what Google is doing, what its subsidiary YouTube is doing in terms of the algorithms. And um, again, there's so many dimensions of the story that remain to be fully told. So I want to talk about January the 6th. Do you think that we as a conservative movement and I've spoken to people who were, were present, who are real hardcore, way out there, but others who were very reasonable and just wanted to support President Trump. Right. And it really was a diverse group of conservatives who were there. Do you think we could have recognized that this was gonna ultimately be used against us and was gonna get milked as much as it has been? I mean, still today, as we have this conversation, uh, we're still, the January the 6th committee is still there and trying to control news cycles. Right, well, it's, it's a vexed issue because, again, it's like if we take it too far, you know, that we can conclude, okay, we should never have gatherings in public yes. places again. And frankly, that's why the feds infiltrate these types of things and create provocative situations precisely so that people say, okay, real life meetings are too dangerous and this and that. And that's an unfortunate conclusion. I think that's taking it too far. But I think people definitely need to be cautious and people need to be cognizant of the fact that every meeting such as this, there are going to be provocateurs. There are going to be people like Ray Epps, whom you know people listening to this may have heard of, who will try to escalate things, who may not be acting in a genuine fashion. And of course, there are also just going to be crazies who aren't feds, but they might as well be because they're not acting in a manner that's consistent with our best interests. So we need to be more careful than the other side because the other side controls federal bureaucracy. And the other side from, for instance, the Whitmer kidnapping plot, which yes. has a million legal problems with it, which looks broadly speaking like an entrapment operation. It was in many ways the October surprise before the election. It was conducted by you know, the FBI under Trump, which gives you a sense of what I was saying of like, we don't control the government even when we control the presidency. And just as a little tidbit, little detail about that, the individual who oversaw that entrapment operation in Michigan the day after the so-called plotters were arrested, that individual is called Stephen D'Antuono, was promoted by Christopher Wray to run the Washington DC field office, where he went on to oversee the January 6th investigation, the critical months leading up to January 6th and after, and actually became the public face of the pipe bomb investigation, and recently very, very quietly and suspiciously retired on the heels of certain explosive coverage that Revolver News has done on the pipe bomb issue specifically. So what are the things that you've unearthed that we've learned about January the 6th you think are really essential for any audience to understand, fully understand the picture? Well, there's so much more that we can cover in the scope of this conversation, so I'd love to maybe come back and have this sure, be absolutely. an ongoing thing, but the short version, you can go to revolver.news, read our series of pieces. I think in a nutshell, there are two smoking guns at this point. One is the Ray Epps issue, and people can go and watch all the video and decide for yourselves what you think. And the other issue is the pipe bomb issue. And the pipe bomb, again, it's a, it's a big story. It's very suspicious how it was found and when it was found uh, in the RNC side. Very suspicious how it wasn't found at the DNC side, given that, like, literally the Secret Service was there, did a sweep, and they didn't find it, even though the pipe bomb was allegedly at this park bench right outside of the DNC. So it's very weird. And then on top of that, we've, dis we've discovered and proven conclusively that in the surveillance footage released by the FBI, they have censored or withheld, whatever word you want to use, footage that we know that they have that would depict the pipe bomber actually planting the bomb. Why would they do that? I don't know, they haven't answered. And additionally, they very likely tampered with the footage because we've shown the frame rate of this footage is 1.2 frames per second, which doesn't exist anywhere commercially. And so we think that they tampered with this, which is one of the reasons why I'm saying we need to use subpoena power when we have it 
basically to uncover the chain of custody of this surveillance footage and get the full and raw, unedited footage that I think will lead to some very, very dark and explosive places that the American people deserve to know. Well, let's, let's connect a couple ideas that you bring up because I am totally all for that approach. But as you say, if we wait to win elections, it's going to be too late. Right. And most people at home who are watching this and who are on your website or online, uh, they want to do more. So, right. so what can we do in the meantime, aside from coming up with a trillion dollars for a SPAC fund? Right. And not to say we shouldn't do that. It sounds, <laughs> sounds like a great idea. But it's the, what, what are the steps that you see people can take right now? Well, one thing that people should be aware of is that politicians, for the most part, outside of a certain group of core fighters yeah. on the J6 issue, like Marjorie Taylor Greene's been great, Matt Gates, um, Biggs, uh, Thomas Massey, there have been a handful of real yeah. warriors on this, but outside of that, most elected Republican officials don't want to touch this. They'll only deal with it if there's sufficient public pressure to do so, sure. and the public pressure is predicated on public awareness. So simply reading these stories, digesting the information and sharing it with other people is the precondition for the public pressure necessary yes. to keep these elected officials interested in the topic which they would love I'm telling you they would love to move on to the next fake scandal of yeah. what AOC is doing they don't want to touch this stuff that deals with the national security state for various reasons some obvious and some not so keeping up the pressure is a key issue I think Aside from elections as well, I think the RNC could be using the power of its purse more effectively. Remember, the regime has used January 6th as a broad brush to tarnish basically the entire Republican Party. Their reputations, even the bad ones, even the ones who are, you know, the rhinos, whatever, everybody's reputation is at stake here. And I think given the magnitude of what the regime has done to amplify J6, it's in all of Republicans' interests to uncover the truth about it. The RNC, we just learned, has spent a ton of money on all kinds of arguably frivolous stuff. You would think that the RNC could set aside some money to support and encourage whistleblowers within the national security establishment who would come forward and tell us more about this, give us yeah. more receipts. That's the kind of thing that we can be doing that doesn't require winning elections. I, I agree with that. Uh, do we know exactly what happened to all the money that was raised, mostly by President Trump, to fight uh, for Stop the Steal cases? And, and has it all been allocated? Is it, there something there, perhaps, that maybe could be used on behalf of some of these investigations? I think that would be a great idea. I think. The, the money at you know, Trump's disposal, the money at the GOP's disposal, at the RNC's disposal. There's so much at stake here. Look, the, the regime is using January 6th in order to go after Trump and his supporters, to go after Republicans generally. There's no better bang for your buck than spending the minimal amount of money required to completely destroy the narrative. Revolver News, we're you know a, an upstart organization, we're in a shoestring budget, and we've done more to damage the official narrative than any of these GOP affiliated institutions with millions and millions of dollars at their disposal. This has been my main beef with the Republican donor class is they'd rather put a lot of money to a candidate that will probably lose or maybe lose and not enough into uh, not just doing the investigations but I think we got an idea here if there was a big reward for some whistleblowers who could really explain what's going on within our government right. and really what's going on within our deep state and within these tech companies I mean, if you make those people even a little bit wealthy, they might actually do it. A lot of them are just protecting their careers, and it's why they're going along with these horrific right. missions that they're being put on by their superiors. Right. Well, that's exactly why I just stated and why I've been doing it for some time now, saying, look, the RNC, anybody, we need to set up a fund that will support these whistleblowers. And again, bang for your buck, yeah. the leverage per dollar spent of doing something like that vastly supersedes whatever nonsense they're wasting money on now. And so the problem is... But it's cultural. We have yeah. to culturally get people convinced your money isn't best spent necessarily on whichever your candidate is. Yes. So that's fine. I'm not saying we need less money in politics. I, I, I'm, even though I can, but just not, right. not, it's not for this conversation. Right. It's got to go elsewhere, too. we got to try different stuff. Right. Why do we get wedded to tactics that don't work? Well, I agree. And look, the Elon example, I think, is a great proof of concept here the most effective operator in terms of restoring free speech to the internet 
It's not an elected Republican official. It's somebody like Elon Musk, who is a private, successful industrialist. And yes, you know, he made a lot of money through, you know, certain dealings with the government as, you know, basically anyone who's a big deal in tech does so because big tech at the highest level in the country is essentially IT support for the national security state. That's fine. But he's done a great job and he's really shown like how to be effective and it's not coming from the electoral politics system it's not coming from the government it's coming from a private actor who is um, more competent and more effective than the rest and frankly it's not a high bar but I'm very grateful for the just fortuitous fact that he yes. stepped in at the right time and we're actually getting some results but finally. I do think this is the challenge for the audience is that we need to raise the bar yes. not just be uh, overjoyed with what Musk is doing which is terrific and we're lucky right. to have it but it's got to be the tip of the iceberg it's got to be the first of a longer process of trying to unravel where the power is in this country or else we're not doing our jobs and I think our Americans can demand more than what we're getting not just from our our elite in the government side but our elite in the business side they we deserve better from them as well absolutely and uh you know part of it is structural part of it is that the GOP is set up to be sort of a Robin to the regime's Batman um a really incisive uh, point that I found somewhere on Twitter was basically that the GOP grift is grifting the process yeah the GOP grift is process oriented it's through you know fundraising it's through donations and everything but basically it means that because it's independent of outcome the relevant people dine well irrespective of whether we win or not and when we win they dine well irrespective of whether we deliver on the issues versus the democrat side and this is not admirable but in a way it represents a more optimal incentive alignment which is that the democrats grift comes after a successful outcome. They win positions in the government and their grift is using their power over taxpayer money to distribute to their clients, which is unfortunate. It's in a way one of the things that, you know, traditional conservatives have complained about for a while with some justification. But, but, but it's the incentive system. But You're the incentive system, yeah. they have to at least win. And so it represents yeah. a healthier incentive structure from the standpoint of delivering for their supporters. Our incentive structure is so perverse because the same bloated mediocrities will dine on their steak dinners whether or not they win, and that needs to change. I'm American made. That is today's show. Thanks so much to producers Zach Jones and Robert Marlowe helps me pick topics. All of you who stick with me and help us grow Brightport News, can't thank you enough, and we'll talk to you next time. Go.